The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Well, good morning again. My name's Chase, and I'm glad to be with you as one of the pastors here to share with you. You've been hearing us talk about Impact Bible Clubs and just some information about those. If, if you think, man, I'd love to take my kids to one of these clubs. I've got neighbor's kids, a friend's kids. Right in the lobby, there's just a little black table with a big sign that says impact. And on that table, there's a front and back sheet that tells you where many of those clubs are. You can also go online to our website and see where those clubs are. Great opportunity to get kids hearing about Jesus. And this, this summer has just been kind of a thing of what's next. And we have been excited through the spring to start gathering again. And now we're opening up some of our other Sunday morning environments. This morning, the Duckworths opened up their class for young adults at 930. I love me some Duckworths. These, uh, they are just full of joy. And so this is a class for both married and unmarried young adults in their 20s and 30s. Welcome to join. It's fellowship, discussion around the word, opportunity to get connected to social events, to gather together as God's people. So that's a great opportunity for you to take advantage of next week. And then right now at 11 a.m. in Creekside, the Examine Life class with Charlie and Vivian Stoner, topical studies of books of the Bible. Charlie uh, can teach you how to study the Bible like nobody else I know. Then we've also got our Bible Trek class, Bob Weber and Patty Lynn teaching on Leviticus. And if you hear the book of Leviticus and you think, what does that really have to do with the gospel? Bob will probably tell you. Um, and singles 40 plus at our Creekside Center in Loft 6 at 11 a.m. If you're single 40 and above, it's a topical discussion. And then finally, be on the lookout. We've got some other environments that will be opening up for couples and singles as well together. Um, that'll be coming up, both environments to study the word, get connected in community with others as we go through the summer and the fall. Well, we are talking about this good and gracious king, and today we're in the first half of Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 29, and we've got a really happy Father's Day message called Rejected. <laughs> Rejection is a painful thing. You can get rejected by your parents, rejected by your kids, rejected by your spouse, rejected by your friends. You can get your shots rejected, your proposal rejected, your ideas rejected, your candidate rejected, your offer rejected. We all experience rejection. If you Google articles on rejection, you will find 92,300,000 opinions on why we get rejected. Jesus himself experienced rejection as did his followers and as do his followers. So today what we're gonna talk about is how Jesus was rejected at Nazareth then we're going to talk about how his disciples had to prepare for rejection in ministry and then how John the Baptist was rejected for holiness. So we're going to start by reading Mark 6, 1 through 6. He went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him and on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were astonished saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? 
and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. That's kind of confusing. They're amazed at his teaching, but they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty works there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Well, God, we thank you for your son. We thank you for his example. We thank you, God, that he is a high priest who can sympathize with us and our weaknesses. He knows what it's like to be rejected, even as God incarnate. And so as we look at this text today, God, we pray that we would not be those who reject Jesus, but by faith who trust and obey Jesus, that we would follow him with joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, first, Jesus is rejected in Nazareth. They're amazed by his works, but they took offense. Why in the world did they take offense at him? And what does it mean he could do no mighty work there? except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them, which sounds an awful lot like mighty work, right? Well, there, there are two ways that you can take this, and one is kind of what word of faith teachers do with this. It's that he could do no work there. He was spiritually or powerfully unable, unable to do the work because of their unbelief. Jesus didn't have the ability because of their unbelief. And word of faith teachers will, will take this and they'll go, hey, you're sick because you don't have enough belief. You, you want more money? Just believe you'll get more money. If life is hard for you, it's because you don't have enough faith. You can imagine the sort of warped things that does to hurting people. And it's just false. That's not what is going on here. You can't checkmate God. He's sovereign. We're not. But it's more of something like this. I, I can't do this. I can't bear with this. He's my marveling at this. I can't believe the unbelief. Here's God incarnate, the Messiah of Israel, the Savior of the world. He's already doing amazing works. And still, they don't believe. And he marvels. He marvels. Well, what is it that makes them go from amazement to offense? I think we've got to look at a parallel passage to find that out. You can turn over to Luke chapter 4. Mark is a gospel of action. Luke is a gospel of detail. And Luke gives us the details of this. In Mark, we see Jesus was teaching in the synagogue in his hometown. In Luke, we see what he was teaching and why they got upset. Luke 4, 16, he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's Isaiah 61, 1 and start of verse 2. And then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Don't miss that. 
all the Jews are fixed on him. That's true in his hometown, and that's what is increasingly happening in his ministry. The Jews, the Israelites, are looking to this man, and he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I'm the Messiah you're waiting for. It's a messianic prophecy Isaiah makes 700 years before Christ is born, and he says, this is fulfilled. And when he said that, all spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Well, why did they speak well of him? Because they had an idea about what it meant that he would proclaim good news to the poor. They had an idea about what it meant that he would proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and set at liberty those who are oppressed. Rome was oppressing them. They were the captives. He's going to set us free from Rome. This is great. This is amazing. We're amazed. Isn't this Joseph's son? And then he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Because they had heard what he had done in Capernaum. They had heard what he had done across the sea. And then Jesus does something that makes them really angry. See, they think they understand the scripture, but they don't. And so he gives them two illustrations that are wrath-inducing for first-century Jews. He says, I tell you, in the days of Elijah, there were many widows in Israel. When the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land, Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who is a widow. Elijah didn't go to the Jewish widows. He went to a Gentile widow and helped her. Well, that's a little bit offensive, but he takes it a bit further. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Naaman the Syrian? Are you kidding me? So Naaman is a Syrian commander, basically the sort of guy who would oversee a modern-day terror cell if he lived there today. And they make a raid. His, his group makes a raid into Israel. They bring slaves back, and they've got this little Israeli slave girl, and Naaman is struck with leprosy. And this little girl says, hey, there's a, there's a prophet in Israel who can heal you. And Naaman goes kind of, he comes across the border and he goes, well, I'm not going to a prophet. I'm going to the king because I'm a commander. And the king says, no, I can't help you. Go to Elisha. He goes to Elisha and Elisha says, dip seven times in the river Jordan. And Naaman kind of says, why? That's a dirty river. Why, why don't you just heal me? Pronounce, do something special, right? And Elisha says, go into the river. And Naaman does and he's healed. And they're here, wait, wait a second. This is good news for our enemies too? And they don't like that. They had an ethnocentric nationalistic faith. And Jesus just kind of blows that up. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue are filled with wrath. They are angry. They're ticked off. How mad were they, Chase? I'm glad you asked. They rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on the edge of town to throw him off the cliff. They are not happy. 
But passing through their midst, he went away. He went away. Well, why did they drive him out of town? Because he's saying to them, listen, this, this gospel of the kingdom that I'm calling you to repent for, this gospel of the kingdom is for all the nations, not just Israel. It's for all peoples. He's telling them that he was Messiah, but he wasn't the Messiah they were expecting, and they took offense. That's how Luke tells us John in John 1 says it a different way. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. That's Jesus. He was in the world. The world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. This is God the Son, God incarnate, sent by the Father, coming into the world, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, his own people, the Jews. He came even to his own town. He came to his own but his own people did not receive him, but to those who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. What? Who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but people born of God. And the Jews didn't realize salvation from their sin was so much greater than salvation from Rome, so they rejected him. But what did Jesus do? He, he went about among the villages teaching. See, he marveled at their unbelief, but here's the reality. All the unbelief in the world could not stop the work of God as the one who keeps his promises and accomplishes his purposes. So Jesus continued to do the work he was doing and he sent others out to do the same. So he's rejected at Nazareth. He sends out his disciples and He's going to tell them, what do you do when you're rejected in ministry? But before we get to their rejection, here's what we've got to understand. The disciples were Jesus's plan A. He called the 12 and began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over unclean spirits. He charged them, take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. You're on mission, travel light. Don't take what's nice, take what's necessary. Don't take what you want, take what you need. Go and be mission focused, go and share. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if the place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and they healed them. The ministry is progressing and the disciples are plan A. See, last week, Jesus brought some along to see what he was doing in Mark 5. Now in Mark 6, he's sending them out to do what he's doing doing. I'm going away. You have to be ready. You are the plan for discipleship of the nations. And the, the Lord would say to us, Temple Bible Church, you are the plan for discipleship in Central Texas. But how do we get to that place? How do we make it to that place? I think the biggest hindrance to growth many Christians never get beyond is that we never make the move from consumption to contribution. 
See, it starts with come and see. He tells them in John 1, come and see, but the gospel ends with go and tell. And if we only come and see and we only consume, if we never go and tell, if we never contribute, we never really are gonna grow. I feel like I should tell you today why I don't smoke cigarettes. Because you might have woken up on Father's Day 2021 thinking, I, I wonder if Chase smokes, and if, if he doesn't, Why? And I'll tell you the answer since you're wondering. From as early as I could remember, my mom would say, don't smoke, it'll stunt your growth. My dad was a basketball coach. My mom was short. My dad wasn't really tall. And I thought at best, if I do everything right, I'll hit five, nine and a quarter. Five, nine and three quarters in boots. Thank you very much, right? I needed all the growth that I could get. I didn't, she never said anything about cancer or all these other awful things. It'll stunt your growth. That was enough for me. I don't want it. Can I just tell you, if you're only consuming and never contribute, it's gonna stunt your growth. You're not gonna grow. You might get to a certain point, but you'll just stop because this is not about transfer of information. It's about transformation of identity. What you learn in here, what you learn in Sunday school, what you learn in small groups, what you learn men and women on Thursday mornings, what you learn in Bible study, gathered as a family, talking about Jesus casually with your brothers and sisters, it's not about transform, or it's not about transfer of information, it's about transformation of identity. It's to bring about the obedience of faith in your life and the lives of those around you and ultimately all the nations. And some of you hear that and you think there's no way I could do that. And I, I just want to tell you that, that you, you can. It's not you, but it's Christ in you. Case in point, impact clubs. Now, I'll tell you a confession about impact clubs. 19 years ago, my family and I came to Temple Bible Church. We moved to Temple. I was going to start traveling and speaking. I wasn't on staff, and we were going to visit three churches. And by God's grace, we visited this one first, and we never visited anywhere else. And the, the first kind of summer after that, I started hearing people talk about Impact Bible Clubs. And I came from a background where they did Vacation Bible School. I think Vacation Bible School is great. No problem with it. But, but I love Impact Bible Clubs. I didn't always. I heard about Impact Bible Clubs and backyards and these different places. And I thought, I wonder how that works. That's pretty cool. And then I heard they let students lead it when there were perfectly sound adults who could. And I just thought, man, that's never going to work. I mean, have you, have you ever smelled a teenager, right? <laughs> have you ever tried to give a teenager this simple instruction, three words, clean your room? I thought that'll never work. That's silly. And then I saw Impact Bible Clubs and I saw young men and women excited to tell children about Jesus. And I saw children come to know Jesus. And then I saw it again and again and again. And then two and a half, three years ago, I'm, I'm reading a short-term mission application from a young man that's going to North Africa, a young woman going to East Asia. And both of them, as they're writing and talking about this, I really got excited about evangelism doing impact Bible clubs, Right. I really just got on fire for the Lord and I realized I could share the gospel with people and there are kids in my city that might have never heard the gospel and oh my goodness, there are, there are people groups that have never heard. 
I've got to go. Those are impact Bible clubs. And I would just say, teenagers are beautiful people, and if God can use them, he can use you. In your home, in your workplace, in your neighborhood. Well, but what if I get rejected? What if they will not receive you? What do I do? What do I do? See, rejection can keep us from sharing the gospel. When I was thinking about this, I I thought about one of my favorite childhood movies, Back to the Future. What a fun story. Michael J. Fox plays a guy named Marty McFly, and he goes back in time. And as he goes back in time, there's a, a set of events that happen that make it seem like his mom and dad may never fall in love. And so he's got to fix that. And so he sits down. You can go ahead and cue the video. He sits down to talk to his dad about his mom. George, buddy, remember that girl I introduced you to? Lorraine? What are you writing? Uh, stories. Science fiction stories about uh, visitors coming down to Earth from other planets. Get out of town. I didn't know you did anything creative. Uh, let me read some. Oh, no, 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 no. I never, I never let anybody read my stories. Why not? Well, what if they didn't like them? What if they told me I was no good? I guess that would be pretty hard for somebody to understand. Uh, no. No, not hard at all. So anyway, George, about Lorraine. She really likes you. She told me to tell you that she wants you to ask her to the enchantment under the sea dance. Really? Oh, yeah. All you got to do is go over there and ask her. What, right here, right now in the cafeteria? What if she said no? I don't know if I could take that kind of a rejection. Well, don't, don't we do that? He can never share his story. He can never ask her out. I don't think I could handle that kind of rejection. We, we do that. What if they say no? What if they don't listen? And Jesus says, wipe the dust off your feet. And so his disciples went. They went out proclaiming that people should repent, that they should turn and trust God. Well, I do want to talk about what keeps us from doing this, but there's a caveat that I would kind of phrase like this. Don't stub your toe while you're dusting your feet. See, people might reject your message because they're rejecting the gospel, but they might reject it because you're a jerk, right? There are times I've shared the gospel and people have rejected the gospel. I look back early in life and I think, man, there are times that they were just rejecting me being a jerk. I wish that that wasn't true, but that's true. So number one, don't stub your toe while you're dusting off your feet. Don't be a jerk. Number two, this is not about tangential issues. This is about the gospel. Well, they don't agree with me. I'm going to just... Dust my feet off of that, right? Over the littlest of things sometimes. And then over secondary issues, you just watch the church on social media. And it's sometimes, it's like if people don't hear what I have to say right in this moment, the world is going to stop spinning and there's just so much divisiveness. It's, it's embarrassing. So there's the caveat But there's the truth. Sometimes people receive the gospel, sometimes they don't. We've all experienced this. 
If we've shared it, why do we struggle with it? Why are we not ready? Is it we don't understand what the gospel is actually intended to do in us? Is it fear of people? Is it fear of offending? Is it fear of imperfection? If you're worried about doing it in an imperfect way, don't worry about doing it in an imperfect way because Jesus' disciples this first century, they did it in an imperfect way and his disciples have been doing it imperfectly for the last 2,000 years. And still the power of the spirit at work in the lives of people draws many in every generation to Christ. And the gospel continues to be mighty to save, powerful to save. Sometimes it's a matter of misunderstanding. Sometimes it's a matter of obedience. It's like raising kids. There are certain things that you tell a kid to do and they understand and they just don't want to obey. Sometimes you explain something to a kid and they don't understand. And see, here's the truth about people who go and share the gospel. We've seen people, we've looked up to people, we've been jealous of people, we've been amazed by people who go and share the gospel with others. They read the scripture and they seem to understand it. They pray and they're excited about praying. It actually wakes them up instead of making them fall asleep. And here's the truth. That's wonderful, but it's not exceptional. And we need to know that. We treat it like it's exceptional, like it's the exception, but it's not. It's wonderful. But this is what happens when the power of God begins to work in the lives of people. Sometimes we don't understand that. And part of the reason is sometimes we don't understand the nature of the gospel. One of the ways we struggle to understand the nature of the gospel in the 21st century West is by embracing something that theologians call moral therapeutic deism. That is a mouthful if you're from Deweyville, Texas. What is moral therapeutic deism? It's this idea. There's a God who watches over humanity. Moral therapeutic deism would say there's plenty of room for God and there's plenty of room for Jesus. He wants people to be good and nice and fair. His goal is for people to be happy and feel good about themselves, you know, one spouse, two kids, nice house, no hell, right? He, he's not, he's not going to interrupt your life or get in the way of your agenda. In no way would Jesus actually want to be Lord over you. He's just there if you have a problem. Good, good people go to heaven when they die. And we lap this up like a six-year-old eating sour patches. We just shovel it in. It's not good for us. It's not nutritious. If you got any kind of palate at all, it actually doesn't taste all that good. But we lap it up. And because we do, regular following, obeying, and sharing Jesus by faith seems exceptional, not just wonderful, which it is. But discipleship is not a transfer of information, it's a transformation of identity. And so Jesus' disciples go and they preach that people should repent, that they should turn their lives back toward God and they cast out many demons and anoint many with oil who were sick and healed them. And King Herod heard of it. For Jesus' name had become known. That's what happens when discipleship happens. When people are making disciples, Jesus' name is magnified. Jesus' name had become known. And so Herod wonders, who, who is this guy? And he starts to think, well, maybe... Maybe it's John the Baptist reincarnated who I beheaded. Maybe John the Baptist has just come back to life 
in the form of Jesus. Maybe he's Elijah the prophet. Who, who is it? He, he said, no, it's John whom I beheaded. He's been raised. And so then we hear the story of John's decapitation, a lovely and exciting Father's Day message. See, Herod sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, the scripture tells us. Herodias was his brother Philip's wife. Herod Antipas came into power and he said, I, that's a good looking lady. I'll just take her for myself. Awful, ugly, gross. And it sounds like she willfully came. John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife, which shouldn't have shocked anybody in Israel, including the king. And Herodias, his brother's wife, had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. Why? Because Herod feared John. He knew there was something about John. He was a righteous and holy man, and so Herod kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, yet he heard him gladly. Here's this guy who's just deep in sin and perplexed as he hears the word of God. He's convicted, but he's not acting on that conviction. So the king has a party for his birthday. All the nobles, it says the leading men of Galilee were there, which must not have been very good men because then Herodias' daughter comes and does a dance for them. And you can imagine the debauchery that's happening. And it pleased him. It pleased him so much that he says to her, I'll give you whatever you want up to half my kingdom. And so she goes to her mom and says, Mom, what should I ask for? And her mom says, the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Herodias has her moment. And so she goes and says, I, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And then the strangest thing, the king, verse 26, was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. Because of his oaths, he didn't want to break his word to her. I mean, he hadn't struggled with breaking oaths, right? But because of his oaths and because of his guests, the fear of people, he did not want to break his word. And he sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. And he went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl heard of it. And they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Now, what a turn of events and what a couple of men. Dads, as we think about the sort of men that we want to be, it might be good just to pause for a moment and think about the difference in John the Baptist and in Herod. John the Baptist was a hair-coated prophet and Herod was a gorgeously robed ruler. John the Baptist lived an austere and simple life. Herod was flamboyant and ornate. John the Baptist was righteous. Herod was debaucherous. John the Baptist was a prophet without a price, but Herod was a man who could be bought. John the Baptist had moral courage. Herod was a spineless coward. John the Baptist had a clear conscience. Herod had a troubled conscience. John the Baptist maintained his integrity but lost his head, and Herod forfeited his integrity and lost his soul. John the Baptist shows us what a man of the spirit looks like, and Herod shows us what a man of the flesh looks like. 
When I think about the men who've influenced my life starting from an early age up until this very day, when I look around this room and I, I see the men of TBC, many of whom I, I know and have come to love, I see a lot of men who are righteous, men of integrity, men who can't be bought, men who live simple lives for the sake of the gospel. And I see others of you who aspire to be those sorts of men. You're growing toward it, but you think that you can't. And listen, the same God who worked through John the Baptist can work in you. Now, it's, it's worth noting there, there are some of you here as well that you name the name of Christ, but you really want to build your own empire and have your own kingdom. You, you hear this story about Herod and you just think, oh, he didn't really have it so bad, right? Be careful. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Well, how do we not be that guy and how do we be men of integrity? Dads, kids can gratefully look up to who serve their wives, lead their wives well, are examples in the community. It's... The answer is by God's grace. The grace that's strong enough to keep us is strong enough to, the grace that's strong enough to save us rather is strong enough to keep us. The grace that makes us alive in Christ can transform us in Christ. See, it might look like John was alone, but he wasn't alone. God was with him. He couldn't be manipulated. He wasn't beholden to power. He wasn't domesticated. He was unapologetic and he was unashamed as the forerunner who said, make ready the way of the Lord. I wonder how, and as I wondered how, I, I thought back to a poem I heard about a month before God saved me. I, I trusted Christ in July of 1991. In June of 1991, I heard a poem. A youth pastor read, a friend had invited me to an event, and as he read that poem, I just began to think, oh, that's, that's not me. I was moral, I was religious, I knew all the right answers, but this wasn't me. The story has it that an African believer trusted Christ and left animism and his family was mocking him, calling him back into ancestral worship. And this was his response. I'm part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have Holy Spirit power, the die has been cast, I've stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of his. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm finished now with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tame visions, worldly talking, cheap giving, and dwarf goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, applause, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, tops, Recognize, praise, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by faith, lean on his presence, walk by patience, am uplifted by prayer, and labor by his power. My pace is set, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven, my road is narrow. My way is rough, my companions few, my guide reliable, and my mission clear. I can't be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of adversity, negotiate at the table of the enemy, pander at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. 
I won't give up, shut up, let up until I've stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, preached up for the cause of Christ. I'm a disciple of Jesus. I must go till he comes, give till I drop, preach till I'll know, work till he stops me. And when he comes for his own, he'll have no problem recognizing me. My banner will be clear. Perhaps John the Baptist was the original member of the fellowship of the unashamed. See, the, the problem we run into is we, we love poems like this, but we rarely say, he must increase and I must decrease. It's by God's power and by God's grace. When you think about how John the Baptist's life on earth ended, you could, you could think that was a tragedy. It was a tragedy when, when that executioner walked to a cell to get him and he wondered, oh, is it, am I actually going to go free? Is it time? Is Jesus going to have me released? Was it a tragedy when he walked down the hall and realized that's not what was happening? When his head was laid over on its side and he saw the glimmer of that axe head and he heard it rise, was that a tragedy? It was a sad moment. I wish John the Baptist hadn't had to go through that. But that's not what I think of when I think of tragedy. When I think of tragedy, I think of a Christian blogger who says, God's told me to leave my family and marry a soccer star and abandon the faith. When I think of tragedy, I think of people who are more beholden to power on earth than they are to being in the presence of God. I think of people who've understood Christian, biblical, historic teaching on a variety of subjects and now they reject it and they say with the serpent, surely God hasn't said that. I think of a megachurch pastor who leaves the faith because surely there couldn't be hell if God was good. See, I think... I think that's a tragedy. I think John's a martyr, and there's a difference. See, if we're rejected for the gospel, we don't walk in pride, we don't walk in arrogance for it, we walk in humility because the gospel is not rewarded by merit, it's received by mercy. Every transformation, every death to self, every next step, every dusting of our feet is a new morning mercy. And the reason is because God is with us. God's with us. Well, how could John do this? I, I think I found the answer in a conversation I, I had this week. I was talking to a young man named Kevin Beavers. Kevin was one of those folks who came through TBC, was impacted by Impact Bible Clubs, married a girl named Samantha who also grew up here and, and now in College Station, he mobilizes students to mission, just beginning that work. And he and I were having coffee this week, and I said, Kevin, what excites you most about mobilization? And he said, well, let me tell you a story. He said, I've never had trouble seeing God as father, because I had a really good father, great relationship with my father. His mom and dad... Uh, Mike and Tammy, part of TBC, great family. And because he had a family that was in Christ, he saw God as father well, and he saw it easy. And he said, you remember take your kid to work day when you were a kid? My dad did that with me. And he said, I would go and I would think I was doing all kinds of cool stuff as I picked up a pile of paper clips to organize or 
Dad gave me a file and would tell me to take it to one desk and then I'd take it back to the other desk. And I was, I was there and I was doing something, but the reality is my dad was the one doing the work. He said, what I love about mobilization is I get to tell people about Jesus and his vision for the world. But as I enter into every conversation with young men and women, I know it's the father that's doing the work. See, every day of obedience by faith is take your kid to work day. That's what Kevin says. Sorry, if we, Jim, if you can pull that up, I hit the wrong slide there. I'm sorry. Every day is take your kid to work day. One, one last thing and then we'll be done. What, what was John thinking? I wonder what he was thinking. I wonder what gave him sustaining power. And I, I don't know, but I'll tell you, I began to imagine what John might be thinking. Last Sunday morning, about 5.30, I was drinking coffee and just reading and praying through Psalm 16. And I saw something that I've, I've read a whole lot, but it just struck me different than I'd ever Read before, Psalm 16, 8 says, I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Now, I, as I read that this time, for some reason, I thought, does that actually say because he is at my right hand? Like, what in the world does that mean? The disciples asked Jesus, can we sit at your right hand or your left? And he says, that, that's not for you to decide or me to decide. That's been given to people Jesus, when he rose from the dead, he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. So there's some kind of metaphor in this, but what a metaphor. I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. He's with me, the God who made the heavens. He's with me. So when the ax comes up and when the ax goes down, even then, he's with me. Maybe that's what John was thinking he would have known the Psalms, maybe, maybe he just continued in verse nine, therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. Why? Because my flesh also dwells secure. Well, John, it doesn't sound like your flesh dwells secure. But the psalmist continues, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. See, God was with John. And he'll be with you and he'll be with me. You make known to me the path of life. And as the ax came down, John left mortality and stepped into life. And in your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So if we're rejected for the gospel, if we're rejected in ministry, if we're rejected because of the life we're living in Christ, God won't forsake us. So four questions, maybe one of these questions will hit you that I think are, are good questions to ask as we figure out how to apply this. Number one, what are you afraid of? What are you afraid of when it comes to being rejected for the gospel? What's the thing that keeps you from being all that God would call you to be, all that he has for you? What are you afraid of? And then number two, as you think about sharing the gospel, who are your three? You gotta have three people in your life that you know need to hear it and you know you can share it with. Who are your three and, and what's your next step for sharing? Another question, how are you gonna take the next step from consumption to contribution? How are you gonna grow? What's the next step for you from consumption to contribution? And then the last question is how are you gonna 
give your life away for the gospel. I ask you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's to lay your life down. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. What are you afraid of? Who are your three? How will you take the next step from consumption to contribution? And how will you give your life away? Well, Father, there are all kinds of things in this world that cause us to fear and keep us from faithful obedience. And God, we pray you take our fears away, that your presence would overwhelm them. And God, I, I pray that a lot of kids would come to know Jesus through Bible clubs this week. But then because of the men and women in this room, I pray a lot of adults would come to know Jesus this week because we decided to share at home, at work, in our neighborhood with a relative far away. Lord, help us to know how to grow so that we can give our life away for the sake of the gospel. For your glory and for our joy, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.